Glancing back at chapter 21 as we look at this study this evening. In the, in the years following 9-11 and the events that occurred in New York City on that date, I've run across people whose stories are compelling and some of them disturbing. Most of the people that got up that morning and went to work were ordinary people like you and I, going about their daily business, grabbing a coffee on their way to the office. Some getting in early to get through their work so they could leave early for a special occasion. One individual coming back from vacation in Rome, getting up early to catch a flight. And what makes their stories so compelling is that their ordinary stories were intersected that day by another story, a story of fanaticism, of hijacking, of mass murder. The events of 9-11 will forever define how those people are remembered. For the survivors, those who took the wrong elevator, those who ran for the right set of stairs, those who called in to buy a present before going to their office, that same event touching their life has marked them for life, for good or ill. Everybody in this room has their own story. We won't have the time, we don't have the time really, to get to know each other's story. But that story of yours defines who you are, makes you who you are today. How your story has interacted or intersected with other people's story has, has shifted the direction of your life in a whole variety of ways. Everybody has their own story, and I want to look at this story that is recalled here, that we read it earlier, chapter 22, as Paul takes the opportunity to speak to his brothers and fathers, that is, to his fellow Jewish leaders and people, about his story. Now, the background, of course, is that Paul's in Jerusalem. He didn't need to go there. He had chosen to go there. He had a number of reasons for doing so. One was that he'd raised some money and there had been a famine there and he wanted to take that money to the Christian congregation there that was struggling in that context. The reason for taking the money there is that the money had been raised by people who were not Jews but had become Christians. And there were always tensions in those early days between Christian believers who were Jews in background and Christian believers who were Gentile in background. And Paul was convinced that this gift of money from Gentile believers to Jewish believers would help to smooth over the difficulties between the two groups. The other reason for going to Jerusalem was biblical theological. <laughs> what does that mean? Somebody's asking. I see it from your face that somebody's asking it. So I'll answer. You need to learn some of the languages, some of the buzz words of the faith. And biblical theological is an important phrase for you to learn. What it really means is it's a reference to the script that drives the plot line of the Bible story. The script is written by God. God has written the script for the plot line that develops from Genesis through to Revelation. And important in that story is the city of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the key events of our salvation take place. It's from Jerusalem that the message 
of salvation will go out into all the world. That was what was prophesied by Isaiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 2, many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the house, the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That was the promise of God. And Jesus had confirmed that that was precisely what was going to happen back in the beginning of chapter of, of Acts in chapter 1, that his apostles would be his witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And now Paul has in mind going to the ends of the earth. He has Spain in view. We know that from a letter he wrote to Rome. And en route to Spain, he wants to go to Rome, to the capital of the empire. To the Jews, that was the ends of the earth. Paul wants to go to Rome, but he wants to go via Jerusalem. In other words, he's very conscious that he is fulfilling the word of God, and he wants to make it clear that he's going from Jerusalem to Rome with the gospel. That's why he's in Jerusalem. What is strange to some Christian ears, however, is to read the story in chapter 21 and to find him not only in Jerusalem, but also in the Jerusalem temple. After all, Paul is a Christian. And as a Christian, of course, he's part of that movement that is transitioning out of the physical temple in Jerusalem into a whole new uh, understanding of the purposes of God. But he was going to the temple out of respect for his fellow Jews. He'd been asked by James, the leader or the spokesman for the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, to help them out because there was a lot of persecution going on uh, of believing Jews from unbelieving Jews. And in particular, unbelieving Jews were accusing believing Jews of despising their own tradition, their own background that they were living like Gentiles. In fact, some people had spread news that people like Peter were living like Gentiles when they were with Gentiles and not as a Jew. Paul himself was, uh, they were saying, despising his own Jewish heritage. So the apostle wants to correct that. He wants to deal with that slander. And out of respect for Jewish sensibilities and to refute Jewish slanders, Paul goes to the temple. And in the temple, somebody recognizes him. In fact, some dispersed Jews from Asia recognize him. Hardly surprising because Paul had spent some time going from city to city in Asia, minor, what is now Turkey. He'd gone from city to city, and he'd gone first of all to the synagogues, and there he taught the people as a rabbi. He had taught them from their own law, and he had demonstrated from their own law that Jesus was the Messiah. And almost invariably, he had been kicked out of the, temp uh, the synagogue, and he'd had to go and teach Gentiles. So they recognized Paul, they recognized him on temple property. They jumped to the conclusion immediately that Paul has despised the temple, that he's defiled the temple. And it isn't long before this word of somebody there who is behaving like a Gentile present in the Jewish temple sparks a riot. 
You know, wherever you went in the Jewish temple, there were these signs up. No trespassing. If you're a Gentile, don't bother coming any further or we'll kill you. They were, they were kind of polite that way. They told you ahead of time that they were going to kill you. And they meant it. They absolutely meant it. If you were a Gentile and you stepped into the temple precincts, apart from the court of the Gentiles, any further, you're a dead man. If you're a woman, you wouldn't be there. But if you'd be a dead man if you got that far. And so these Jews were riled up into a mob, a violent mob. We read that in, uh, earlier in chapter 21. They, they were seeking to kill him. They grabbed him. They hauled him through the streets. They started to stone him. And their big complaint is in chapter 21, verse 28. This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people, Israel, against the law of Moses, and against this place, the temple. This is the one who is teaching everyone, everywhere. A bit of hyperbole there, but that's the way they wanted to present it. Everyone, everywhere, against the people, the law, and the place. In other words, this man is attacking the fundamentals of Judaism. And what is, of course, so ironic is that Paul was in the temple engaging in an act of purification specifically so as not to defile the temple. He had respect for his own background, his own tradition, and his own people. Now it's at that point that the Romans intervene because there's a mob and the Romans were very uh, concerned to preserve order in their empire. And so a Roman cohort of about a thousand soldiers garrisoned in the fortress Antonia, uh, which overshadowed the temple, came and immediately dispersed the crowd and they ran away and uh, they took Paul back to the barracks in verse 37 of chapter 21. Now one of the questions that people have is whether Paul was wrong to follow James's advice and go to the temple. They say, after all, hadn't Paul been told that he was going to be arrested and he was going to be put in chains and that the Jews would reject him? So why did he go? Why did he go? And what we have to bear in mind is that Paul's object in going to Jerusalem was not to avoid mistreatment at the hands of unbelievers. Paul's reason for going was to reassure Jewish believers, that is, Jewish Christian believers, that he supported them as they transitioned out of Judaism into fully-fledged Christianity. He did that for their sake. Paul's goal was never to avoid suffering for Jesus' sake. And he went to Jerusalem knowing what was ahead of him. The Holy Spirit had been warning him in every town that he went to. This is what lies ahead. But nowhere did the Spirit tell him not to go. So he goes knowing what's coming. So he's been arrested. He's been taken into the barracks. A crowd of Jews now have reassembled and they're calling for him to be released to them so that they can kill him. And at this point... Paul asks permission of the Roman guard to speak to the people. One of the things that's going to happen from here to the end of the story is that Paul is going to use strategic 
opportunities, any opportunity that comes up. He's going to use any strategic opportunity before a mob in Jerusalem, before a governor of, of a state on another occasion, before a king on another occasion, and once he's in Rome itself, he's going to take any opportunity he can get to defend the gospel. And that's what he does here. And as he speaks, he tells his story. It's a great story. As a little boy, I remember my mother reading me a, a child's version of this story. I still have the little book. It's the, bat, the, 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 the edges of the book have all gone. and uh, the, the basic, it's really yellow with age. I mean, it was really yellow with age, as I recall, when I was a boy. And that's 100 years ago. So it, it must be really, really old. And, uh, but I used to be so excited to hear the story that he tells. I still am. It hasn't got old yet. And as he tells the story, there's a number of things that he says here. And I think the heart of what he says is that he's not ashamed of his own story. First of all, he's not ashamed of his heritage. And he signals that in the way he speaks to these people. At the end of chapter 21, we're told that he started to speak, and he started to speak in the Hebrew language. It's probably Aramaic and uh, Rather than strict Hebrew, that was what most people would speak. But in other words, what he say, what we're being told is he spoke in a language they understood. It was their language. And he tells them right at the, uh, right at the very beginning of his little speech in verse 1 that he's going to defend where he stands and where he comes from. He's a man who has an absolute conviction that Judaism is part and parcel of the purpose of God for the world. Just shortly before this, he'd written a letter. When he was in prison somewhere else, he'd written a letter that we have uh, in which he says this about the Jews. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Paul never, ever rubbished his Jewish background. He was proud of his heritage. Over in the UK, the British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, great English politician, became prime minister in the 19th century. He was a Jew and was once derided in parliament for his background by an opposition spokesman who disparagingly said to him in the middle of one of the debates they have in parliament, you, sir, are a Jew. Disraeli drew himself up to his full height, which was not very high, and he replied, yes, sir, that is true. I am a Jew, but I remind you, sir, that half of Christendom worships a Jew, and the other half worships a Jewess. And sir, when your ancestors were gathering acorns in a German forest, my ancestors were giving law and religion to the world. This really was proud of being a Jew. He had reason to be. He wasn't ashamed of his background. Paul was not ashamed of his background. He tells them that he'd been born 
as part of the dispersion in verse 3. He'd been born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and there uh, he had belonged, uh, he'd been born, and then he'd been taken as a young person, he'd been taken as a boy, back to Jerusalem, where he'd grown up in the city, this very same city. He'd been educated by Gamaliel at the famous school of Hillel, one of the most famous and rigorous religious training institutions in Jerusalem. He had belonged to the strictest sect of Judaism, the the Pharisees. These were people who lived by the book. They They were strictly by the book. They were regarded by their fellow Jews as the most pious, the most uh, generous, the most caring, the the most evangelical of all of the sects of Judaism. Today, as Christians, we think Pharisee equals bad. But back then, to Jews, the Pharisees equaled the evangelicals. They were the Bible believers. They were the people who stuck to the truth. They were people to be admired and imitated. And they were religiously zealous. They were evangelistic. They would go through hell and high water in order to reach somebody with the message uh, of the law of Moses. Paul had belonged to that sect. He was religiously zealous. He believed what he believed. And if you'd asked him what he believed about Christianity, he would have told you. He believed that it was wrong. He believed that Jesus was an imposter. He believed that he was not the Messiah. He believed that Christian people were deluded. He believed that they were like an infection that was going to destroy Judaism from the inside. That's what he believed. He was firm in his beliefs. He was established in his beliefs. He was a leader in his beliefs. He was proud of his inheritance. Writing to the Philippians, he says this, If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as regards the law, Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. What he's saying there is, I'm not perfect, but I'm as near to perfect as you can find. I have got no guilt on my conscience, no skeleton in my cupboard, nothing that comes to mind that I have to be ashamed of, no sense that if anybody put my life up there on the big screen, that there would be anything that I would be embarrassed about. Paul says, that was my life as a Jew. Law-abiding Jew. He was not ashamed of his heritage. But he was also not ashamed of his conversion. You see, conversion in the truest sense is a collision of narratives. It's when another story, God's story, touches my story, causes a collision that changes the direction of my life. That's what conversion is. It's coming to that realization that maybe my story isn't the whole story. That maybe what I've experienced in my life isn't all that there is. That there is something else that I need to factor into my life. We may wonder why this man would even try to address this mob and speak to them in these reasoned terms. They've just been trying to kill him and stone him to death. But as he tells his story to them, we come up with a twofold answer. This man loved these people. He loved these people. That's why he'd gone to the temple in the first place. 
That's why he was speaking to them. Now the seething mass of unbelieving Jews who wanted to kill him, he saw them as his own dear people. They'd been whipped to a fury by the allegation that he taught people everyone, everywhere against them. And that was slanderously untrue. He taught Gentile people not only to love Christian Jews, but to love Jews in general because God hadn't finished with them yet. He loved them. And he understood them. As he saw that mob picking up their stones to stone him, he understood exactly where they were coming from. He understood that wild rage they felt. He understood that they thought they were honoring God and the holiness of God. Had the commander not intervened, they would have beaten Paul to death. And they would have imagined in doing so that they were doing God a service. Paul understood that. He understood that. He understood that what was in their hearts, of course, was pure murder, fed by national pride, injured self-interest, ignorance, and sheer unregenerate sin sinfulness. That far from serving God, they would have murdered God incarnate. In fact, that is precisely what they would have done had they got their hands on Him. What they imagined was zeal for God was an expression of raw, unredeemed human nature. Paul understood that. He'd been there. He'd been there. He felt exactly what that crowd had felt at one stage. He had felt he was being loyal to his heritage by persecuting, arresting, imprisoning, punishing, and executing Christian Jews. He did it to honor God. He did it from religious pride. He did it because he didn't understand the heart of God, the God he professed to serve. But conversion opened his eyes to that reality. The story of Jesus intersected with the story of Saul of Tarsus and changed the direction of his life. He becomes Paul, the apostle. Paul understood. He understood them. And he tells them that he understood them. He was zealous for God, and he'd gone the, down the wrong path, because as he's going to Jerusalem, he tells them, as he's going from Jerusalem to Damascus, with uh, orders from the high priest to seek out and to arrest every believing Jew, that is, Christian believing Jew. As he is going to Damascus, he tells us, at midday, at midday, there is this irresistible light that shines from heaven. Now, at midday, out in the open, in the Middle East, let me tell you, there is no light brighter than the brightness of the sun blazing in the sky and shining down on you. And yet, as this man is approaching Damascus, the brightness of the midday sun is eclipsed for a moment by a greater brightness that comes upon him, that is observed by those who are with him, so that they remember it, it is etched, it is imprinted in their minds what has occurred on that Damascus road. The sun is outshone by a greater light as Paul rides to Damascus. This is precisely what God had threatened in his law. 
Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 29, at midday you will grope around like a blind man in the dark. And here that promise is fulfilled as Paul on that Damascus road is brought to his knees, blinded by the light. Those who were with him saw the light. It was a phenomenon. They would never forget that. They heard the voice, though they couldn't distinguish what the voice was saying. This was not a dehydration-produced hallucination. This was a heavenly light and a heavenly voice speaking personally to Paul. And he discovered what he hadn't realized. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He had poured his energies into persecuting Christians, seeking them out, arresting them, bringing them to Jerusalem, seeing them executed as he saw Stephen executed. And there in that split moment he realized that by persecuting Jesus' people, he is persecuting Jesus himself. You touch them, you touch me. Anyone who rejects you, rejects me. He had told them. Jesus had told them. And here Paul realizes it, but he realizes more. He realizes that this heavenly light, this heavenly vision, this heavenly being that he sees in the shining of that light, this, this, this vision that he has been given is of the Lord. Only God in heaven can outshine the sun that he has made. Only God in heaven could arrest him in this journey. He says, Lord, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. At that moment, the story of Jesus intersects the story of Paul. It leaves some questions. Was Paul an imposter? Luke, who wrote this, knew Paul. He got the story from the horse's mouth. Was he pretending to be something he wasn't? Was he pretending that something happened that had never really happened? And why would he invent a story like this to persuade others of its truthfulness? Why would he do it? He might do it to get ahead in life, but he already was ahead. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the top dog. He had a great track record. And when he walked into Jerusalem, everybody knew he is the best Christian catcher you can get. That wasn't the way to get ahead. It was the way to get your head lost. Beheaded. That's how he was to die. Was he an imposter? Did he live an immoral life? Did he use the story of Jesus' appearance to excuse bad behavior or make money? No. Was he a fanatic? Was he off his head? Was he irrational? Did this man have the kind of personality given to fantasies? Well, again, think of this. He belongs to one of the most rational sects within Judaism, the Pharisees. He would have heard stories of Jesus' resurrection and the empty tomb and so on. And if you'd asked him about resurrection, he would have said this to you. I know there will be a resurrection on the last day, but on this day, dead men don't rise. Period. Was Paul deceived? Who would have deceived him? Was it Christians deceived him? How could you deceive this man? One of the intellectual giants of his day. They weren't even capable of doing that. 
Nobody could reach this man. He was one of these kind of people. You know, there's some people this today, and you think if only somebody could reach, reach them. But who's near them? Who, who could get to them? Who could get close enough to them to be able to explain the gospel to them? Nobody could get near Paul. You're a Christian. You got near Paul, you'd be in chains, sent back to Jerusalem. There on the Damascus Road, Jesus' story intersects Paul's story, and it transforms it, changes it. He's no longer Saul of Tarsus. He is Paul the Apostle. Life has taken on a whole new significance. Do you know that's what happens when happens when someone is converted? We get to that stage in our life or a moment in our lives when, when suddenly the story of Jesus is no longer something up on the shelf to be consulted or remembered somewhere in the distant past. Somehow or other, Jesus himself steps out of the books, out of history. He steps into my experience. He speaks to me. He speaks directly to me. He may be speaking directly to you tonight as you sit in this room. Directly to you. It's me you've been rejecting. Not the church. Not Christian morality. Not even Christians. Me. It's me. And your story changes forever once you let him in. Once you let him in. Once you receive him and rest upon him, your story changes forever. Let's pray together. And I want to pray a prayer. Somebody here this evening, you're not a Christian. You want to know how to become a Christian. I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to echo it in your mind as I pray, I'm going to pray as if on your behalf. Lord Jesus Christ, I admit that I am weaker and more sinful than I ever before believed. But through you, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. I thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment, and offering forgiveness. I turn from my sin and receive you as my Savior. Amen.